Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The USU Institute of Government and Politics Foxley Forum presented yesterday a talk by former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake titled, Is Polarizing Partisanship the New Normal? We'll feature a conversation with Senator Flake on the program today. We'll also be talking with uh, former Utah State Senator and current uh, Utah Debate Commission uh, co-chair Scott Howell. We're going to be talking about polarization, finding common ground, reverberations from the Kavanaugh hearings, results of the elections, the partial government shutdown, and the State of the Union address, which of course is tonight. We're going to have that 7 o'clock tonight for you right here on Utah Public Radio. And we'll be talking about all related topics. Uh, we hope to hear from you as well. Um, we, uh, I wonder uh, what your uh, solution to polarization is, uh, finding common ground. Is that even a desirable goal in these days of uh, extreme partisanship? We'll talk about the State of the Union as well and the government shutdown. Anything that you'd like to talk about in the realm of politics, here's how you join us. UPRaccess at gmail.com. UPRaccess at gmail.com. We begin with conversation I recorded yesterday with uh, Senator Flake. Uh, caught him uh, in the car as he was uh, heading toward the event in uh, Logan. I assume he wasn't driving at this point, uh, but... <laughs> It was in the back seat. Anyway, interesting conversation, and I began by asking about the title of uh, of uh, the uh, talk. The title is intriguing, Senator. Uh, is polarizing partisanship the new normal? What uh, What's your short answer to that? <laughs> well, sometimes it feels like the better angels of our nature have been placed on furlough. So, uh, yes, that, uh, it seems right, like right now that that is becoming the new normal, and that's the concern, because I think we can't afford to be in, in a position like that, because we need to govern, and uh, the polarizing partisanship that we now have makes it almost impossible to govern, as evidenced by the, uh, of the shutdown that uh, we just ended and may start up again. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, the blame game is useful, but uh, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, do, do you blame President Trump more for this? Do you blame the Democrats as a, a pox on all their houses? What would you say? Oh, there, there's plenty of blame to go around. The, the president, uh, I have to say, uh, for those of us who've been in government for a while and have dealt with a shutdown here or there, you know, the uh, shutdown 101 says, you know, avoid the blame and, and try to place blame on the other side. Uh, the president said, "Hey, I'll gladly take the blame," and that was so. That was a, a bit new, and uh, so it was it was very difficult for Republicans to avoid the biggest share of the blame uh, for this. And and so I I, I think that the country certainly uh, uh, blamed Republicans more, which which led to uh, the president basically just saying, "All right, we'll we'll open it back up again." So you've uh, very recently come out of the the situation in in Washington. Um, I'm not sure what feedback you're getting. That it, you were kind of in the middle there. The, the Democrats were upset at you for uh, they they were pleased that you were calling out the president, but uh, upset with you for still voting with him much of the time. Republicans, some of them were upset. You're you're uh, derailing the unity, which they which I think they they viewed that they wanted. What what feedback are you getting now? Well, that's a difficult place to be. I uh, mean, kind of the man in the middle. But, uh, but I think that's, frankly, where most of the country is. Um, they, they want people to deliberate. They, they want uh, someone who is chairing a hearing 
to, uh, you know, maybe be influenced or informed by the hearing that he's holding. And, and right now, um, all the incentives are to, to rush to the extreme and to stay there. And so you only anger one side, because uh, if not, if you show any inclination that you might, uh, uh, you know, you might deliberate, you might, you know, change your mind, perhaps, uh, you know, given the evidence, then, then you're hit with both the sides. And it's not a comfortable position to be in, believe me. What do you, um, I think the, the Kavanaugh hearing is still reverberating. You were famously, you know, right in the middle of that, uh, having conflicted feelings. Uh, feedback, did you continue to get feedback? And what are your, what are your feelings uh, after that whole experience? Well, that was, that was certainly a defining moment. I, I felt that uh, we had not done due diligence. Uh, I, I felt that there was no good reason why we couldn't have uh, done an FBI investigation. Uh, background investigation, and so that's what I called for. And, and you're right, uh, um, you know, at that time, all the Republicans uh, were telling me, don't do this, don't do this, we, we can't open this back up. Uh, Democrats were cheering it, uh, but I, after we had the investigation, uh, then the roles kind of flipped. Uh, but I, I felt that uh, the country was in a better place because we did a better job, I think, with what our responsibility was. And uh, and I could have read, although I don't want to get in the habit of making background uh, you know, investigations public, I think the country would feel better about where we landed had they been able to read that FBI report. And in the end, uh, you know, the vast majority of Democrats still mad at you because you voted for Judge Kavanaugh. Right. I, I, I can't say that a lot of minds were changed during that time uh, in terms of uh, people in Congress, but I do think that around the country uh, people felt better uh, that, that we uh, delayed the process and did a better job of investigating. Mm. Uh, these, these situations are always difficult when you're dealing with uh, uh, allegations, in this case from 35 years ago, and in a highly partisan charged environment. and. As an elected official, you just got to do the best you can and realize that uh, we may never know uh, what really went on, uh, but you just do the best you can investigating and, and be open to change your mind. Uh, I don't want to make an equivalence between the two, but I wonder what your thoughts are with Governor Northam. Uh, this is, you know, 30 years ago, yearbook photos, and, um, and, and that's it's causing intense pressure now, at least from the Democrats, many of the Democrats, for him to resign. Right. Well, that's obviously a tough situation where, you know, in, in dealing with old allegations, I think in this case, people are looking more at at uh, actions, uh, you know, after it was revealed and, and um, changing his story uh, quite a bit and then talking about other things that he wasn't even accused of. Mm. So, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, those who are, if he doesn't resign, which... I, I will be surprised if he does not, but if he doesn't, then then those in elected office in Virginia will have to, you know, have a tough call ahead of them to determine whether or not he should be removed. I want to ask you uh, about your book, Conscience of a Conservative, uh, right? Uh, this, this, you're, I think you're decrying, at least in part there, that uh, the Republican Party you knew is, has, has shifted. What's the future of conservatism? Is, do you recover the Republican Party? Is it a third party? What What happens? 
I do hope that the Republican Party does recover, but I, I can tell you there's a lot of recovering to do. Uh, we can't go too far as the party of anger and resentment. And, and if you uh, go to a, a rally of the president, uh, it's tough to conclude that we're anything but that. And people chanting, lock her up. And, uh, I, I just it, it's not the party that I grew up with. And I think that, uh, you know, if we want to be a national force in the future, if we want to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a party that actually gains uh, a majority statewide in, in certain states and nationally, we've got to act much differently. And to say nothing of the policy issues, uh, the Republican Party has always been the party of limited government, of economic freedom, of free trade, strong national and international leadership. And that, that is tough to describe the Republican Party right now in that fashion. What would your advice be to the uh, Democrats? Uh, the, the Democrats are having a, uh, you know, a very public debate with a lot of people running for president. Um, some are saying, no, let's not go too extreme uh, liberal, and others uh, are saying that let's, let's embrace that. Uh, I would uh, obviously encourage them to, to seek the middle, um, if they do, I think certainly uh, uh, they'll be victorious in terms of the next presidential election, as well as, uh, you know, continue the gains that they made in the midterm elections. I don't think Republicans have fully come to grips with what a shellacking we took. Uh, you know, it was almost impossible to lose the Senate, but we lost 20 seats we, we in Orange County, California. Uh, represented in Congress, uh, that was a that was a big change. And if Democrats will uh, not uh, you know, go to their extreme, uh, they're facing some of the same populist pressures that Republicans are. But if they can avoid that, then uh, they'll certainly do well. Uh, as a Republican, I I hope that Republicans can can meet them in the middle somewhere. Uh, but uh, that doesn't look to be the case right now. Is your critique, was and is your critique uh, more of the president? Is it more of the political culture, a bit of both? Uh, it's not just the president. A lot of this started long before the president. The, the ground was ripe for a type of populist movement. Uh, my, I've been critical of the president, certainly for some policy uh, decisions that he'd made and statements with regard to a Muslim ban, obviously, and, and his position on immigration, legal immigration, and otherwise. Uh, but but uh, certainly the, the way he conducts uh, politics uh, is not good for anyone. And, and to see uh, Democrats pick up and uh, return serve, basically, uh, uh, to act the same way isn't helpful because the whole political culture changes. And I, I just don't know where we go from there when we – it's so – in, in, at times, coarse or vulgar. Uh, I, I just, um, I, just uh, as an example, the other day when a Democrat uh, said in very crude terms that the president uh, should be impeached, I thought, since I've been critical of the president, that I should tweet something critical of that kind of statement. And I did. I said that the fact that the president uses that kind of language should be no excuse. And within a couple of days, there were more than 30,000 comments on my post, uh, the overwhelming number saying, hey, if the president acts this way, then so must we. And, and that's, that's not good. That's not good for the country.
What, what do you think the biggest problem is? is? Is it the tone? Is it lack of civility? Is it the lack of compromise? Or all of those things? I, I think all of those. Um, it, you, you, you simply have far fewer members of Congress willing to reach across the aisle. Uh, you can look at that, uh, you know, empirically at, at the number of crossover votes uh, by, by individuals. And so that's, that's a problem, and certainly uh, civility. And then that, uh, you know, is exacerbated with, with social media, where it's, you know, it's immediate and, uh, and oftentimes anonymous. Um, it, it simply exaggerates uh, what is already a problem. You've announced you, you will not be running for president, at least uh, this time around. Uh, who do you think should? Well, I do hope that there is a challenge on the Republican side. I think that's healthy for the party. Um, but uh, I'm not going uh, to... I mean, some names out there, John Kasich has talked about it. Some people have mentioned Ben Sass, uh, who's not indicated he's, he's willing to. Uh, but I, I do hope that somebody does. And on the Democratic side, there's no lack of candidates there. Uh, but I do hope that they reach more toward the middle, um, because I, I do hope that we have a change in uh, 2020. Do you, do you think there is a middle? Do <laughs> you think the, a such candidate would have success? Um, it's, it's, it's tough. Obviously, the energy of the party is, uh, is on the left uh, in terms of the Democrats. But also, uh, there is a lot of energy to replace the current president. And if they are convinced, I believe, that the way to do that is to nominate somebody with crossover appeal, uh, Joe Biden, for example, um, then, uh, then they might do that. Uh, finally, Senator, your, uh, part of your post-Senate uh, career will include, apparently, uh, uh, work with CBS News, a series called Looking for Common Ground. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, you know, Common Ground is... Uh, scarce in Washington right now, but it's alive and well everywhere else in the country. When you look at city councils and school boards and associations and businesses that merge, uh, I mean, you you find people finding common ground everywhere, and those stories ought to be told. and uh, And that's what this series will be all about. We'll we'll start in Arizona, uh, uh, and then uh, get around the country and, uh, and tell these stories. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That's my conversation recorded yesterday with the former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. Uh, he was on the USU campus yesterday to give a talk for the uh, USU Institute of Government and Politics Foxley Forum. It was titled, Is Polarizing Partisanship the New Normal? We're going to discuss uh, several of the questions raised in that conversation in the rest of the hour. And we'll be welcoming in after the break um, former State Senator Scott Howell. He's uh, uh, current co-chair of the Utah Debate Commission, and we hope to hear from you. Love to get your take on uh, some of these issues uh, about around surrounding polarization, finding common ground. We can talk about the State of the Union address, which is coming up tonight. You can hear that here on UPR uh, at 7 o'clock tonight. Many other issues to be discussed. Here's how you can reach us, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. More following this break. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. 
From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive mug. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu. This is Alec Baldwin. Documentaries take hard work. Every single thing in the film is intentional. Hyper-intentional. Right. And commitment. You don't want to be in love again and no. have a passion? Oh, no. Romance? No, you don't. I want to make the best documentary in the world. That's it. Sheila Nevins from HBO and Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, their latest project is The Vietnam War for PBS on Here's the Thing from WNYC. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We uh, just heard in the first segment of the program my conversation from yesterday with uh, former Arizona uh, Senator Jeff Flake. The title of the talk, uh, provocative, is Polarizing Partisanship, the New Normal. And we bring in now a former Utah State Senator and current Utah Debate Commission co-chair Scott Howell uh, for his take on uh, on some of these uh, issues. Uh, Scott Howell, welcome back to the program. Morning, Tom. Good. Thank you very much. <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's always great to be with all my Aggies. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for uh, for joining us. Um, I did invite uh, Thomas Wright, your other co-chair of the Utah Debate Commission. We had a nice discussion about uh, some of these issues, about polarization, about finding common ground, I think in October with the two of you. But uh, T- Thomas Wright was involved heavily with the legislature this time around, couldn't join us. Um but in that previous discussion, I came away with, uh, I think, a, at least a largely increased hope about all of this, at least the comity that uh, the two of you were, were displaying, and, and we talked about finding common ground. Do you, do you think on a national scale that that's, that's even possible? Well, you know, Tom, I uh, just listened to the tail end of your uh, broadcast with one of my favorite senators, Jeff Lake, who I think really represents that common ground and trying to get to the center and trying to be able to find solutions to problems. And I certainly agree with um, the senator on his notion that we do find more commonality. And a lot of it's at the city and the state and the local and the school boards. And unfortunately, our national politics have driven and created created such a division among all citizens that it's been pretty tough. Uh, these last few years, and I think Jeff would have actually run again uh, if he could uh, could see a clear pathway that maybe the far far right wasn't taking over their party. So I think that in, overall um, we can find common ground. But I'll tell you tonight, um, with the president's second State of the Union, State of the Union, which by the way, as you know, is constitutionally mandated, just as it is here in Utah. Uh, for a governor to give that update. But it, it's going to be one of the most dramatic moments, I think, in recent history for this annual uh, address to Congress. I really think that the, the president will speak uh, with a house full of Democrats jostling to challenge his reelection. There's going to be many of the female lawmakers who are planning to, uh, to be there and dress in suffrage white. Uh, his, his number one enemy, which is very sad, Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, will be set right behind the dais. And that appearance in and of itself will be shadowed by the whole threat of a, another government breakdown in short of 10 days. And this is where I really find fault with both parties. You know, the speaker ought to, to be there 
and be supportive. And we don't have to give rah-rahs, but I, I think that uh, people are going to watch her nonverbal cues all night, and that's going to be the story. And that's the saddest thing about this, Tom, is that uh, all of a sudden we're going to be focused on every candidate running for office or thinking of who's going to run for office as opposed to what the president say, says. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic about that there will be some cooler heads that prevail. But if we get into this standing ovation thing where just the left stands up, then the right stands up, you know, it, 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 it distracts from the whole notion of what should go on. And, and genuinely, I think both parties have some fault on this. I want to uh, recount, this is from the Logan Herald-Journal, their report of uh, Senator Flake's uh, talk uh, yesterday. Uh, he told a story, and I hadn't been aware of this one. This, is, this was a State of the Union, I believe, and he was seated next to uh, former Arizona Representative Gabby Giffords, who was, of course, famously shot at a, at a constituent event. Um, he says that uh, she wanted to stand, of course, she, uh, I think she's a Democrat, she wanted to stand in support of President Obama. He was sitting next to her. She has some remaining problems from her, from her being shot. So he would uh, help her up and, and, of course, then remain standing with her to be able to help her down uh, during, the, during Obama's uh, applause lines. And he said he got pushback from that. And he said people didn't see a kind gesture. They saw somebody consorting with the enemy. Uh, that's, I think, the climate we have nowadays. You know, Tom, I uh, I was aware of that story, and I can only tell you that that just emphasizes what I talked about with this immature political rhetoric. And, and I, I say that with all sincerity because it, it really has stammered the nation. And when we get down to judging one who's helping another, then I think what we've missed is the whole founding of America. You know, our, our forefathers wanted a country that was strong and supportive, and did they fight each other almost to the death, <laughs> some of them, from Hamilton? Um, yeah, they did. But, you know, where we've gone today, and that very story in and of itself shows how either party can demean someone who is acting and, and giving a, a genuine act of kindness and support and then demeaning them. And see, that's what I, I think that Jeff finally at the, the last minute uh, just said, you know, enough's enough. And that's what worries me more than anything else. We're, 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 really, we're really losing great leaders. We are. And that's, uh, that's more than, than what I think what we're going to be bargaining for as a country. And you mentioned before you, th- you think Senator Flake would have run for re-election, but he, he didn't see a path to be re-nominated, although he, if, if he somehow got the nomination, uh, may well have been re-elected. Um, and I think about, uh, you know, a few years back, this, this didn't start yesterday, uh, famously Senator Bennett was, uh, was, was uh, denied uh, re-nomination, as far as I could see, for the sin of trying to reach across the aisle. You know, Tom, uh, that moment lives in my memory, and I was at the convention. And you're probably saying, why was this Democratic leader at the Republican convention? It just so happened that day that the Republicans were holding their convention in the Salt Palace. So were the Democrats. So on a, on a very friendly basis, I walked over and, and was shaking hands with a lot of my friends and, and talking to everyone. And I remember standing right by... Senator Lee's uh, people, and he was staying right there in front of me, when they got the word 
that Bob had been shoved out. And I, I got to tell you, I, I've known Bob. Uh, Mike Levitt put us on a commission to figure out education. You know, two, two different parties trying to figure out a major challenge that we have in the state. And when K through higher ed, I got to know him. And he, what an honorable stand-up guy. And you're right. He cast a vote to do the right thing for our country, but then he paid the ultimate price. He, he lost. And I, I'll share with you another in, <coughs> excuse me, an insight on that story. After Bob got home, he, uh, he was sitting on his chair in his den, and, of course, he was despondent and, and very discouraged because he knew, he knew that when he took that vote that he, he, there was a high probability that he'd have a, a very challenging convention. But he was sitting there, and his, his phone rang, and he said it was the oddest number he'd ever seen on his cell phone. It was a number that was scrambled with alphabet characters in it. And he said, I don't know why, but I answered the phone. And uh, when he answered it, the voice said, hello, uh, Bob, I just want you to know how sorry I am to hear that you will not be back in the Senate and that voice on the other end of the line was Barack Obama. And to me, that, that showed that symbolism of, did those guys agree on everything? No. No, they didn't at all. Did they agree on this financial crisis that was tearing our country apart and literally could have gone into not the Great Recession, but a greater depression? And uh, the president had called him and, and wished him well and said, look, when you come back, please come and visit me. But I just want you to know how sorry I am that you are not going to be back here representing the state, great, great state of Utah. When Bob told me that story, you know, he welled up with tears and said, you know, Scott, if you continue on to go into politics, one thing, please remember, that it's not about... It's not about the far left or the far right. It's about the everyday citizen that's just looking for someone that will stand up and, and fight for him. And, you know, I've never forgotten that, Tom. It was pretty dramatic. And I, I just uh, – and it's interesting that you bring that up because I think tonight is going to be one of those bellwethers where we're going to have all of these people – that are going to be listening, and the president's got to make a tough decision. Is he going to give a speech that stays on script, that uh, underscores um, uh, uh, what's going on in the nation, or is he going to go off script and all of a sudden uh, threaten to declare a national emergency, uh, which he believes that would be able to bypass Congress and continue the, the construction of the border wall? Is he going to be opposed by some lawmakers in his party uh, about uh, promises to fight the president in court if it happens? And, you know, I, I think it's a really going to be a very interesting uh, a state of the union because so many things have gone on. You know, he's hinted that, that he may make news by declaring the national emergency on the, on the wall, but he's also uh, hinted things that I think Democrats can uh, cheer for. The proposal on drug prices or on AIDS or even, as crazy as this sounds, the, the dates and locations for uh, the summit with uh, Chinese and North Koreans to end potential nuclear uh, devastation that could happen in that region. 
So I, I think overall he's, he's got a big, big test tonight. And I think one of the things that, that he really could do to make things better is offer a vision for bipartisan solutions on everything from immigration uh, and drug, drug prices, as I said. Um, one thing that both Democrats and Republicans, I, I've seen this from my days in the state Senate when I'd go back and, and lobby our, our congressional people, is infrastructure. You know, we, we, we need desperately to rebuild some of our bridges and our roads and our highways, things that create jobs, real jobs. And so I think he could also make that a high, high priority where if Democrats didn't react in a positive way, I think people would, lose, would quickly say, you're losing credibility with me. Do you think, just following up on that point, do you think with the incentives or disincentives that are in place now, do you think that that's possible, that if the president proposed, okay, a big infrastructure uh, plan that, that uh, of course, he's got to keep his base in, uh, you know, with him, and the Democrats uh, as well, are. it seems like the incentives uh, de-incentivize people from, from even trying to reach across the aisle. Well, you brought up a very interesting topic, and it's the, these bases on both the Democrats and Republicans. And I think that those bases that people are pandering to and catering to are a prime example of the courage that Bob Bennett had not to pander to a base, but to do the right things for the right reasons at the right time. And I I think that the president in this last little while, and you've read all the CNN polls and and also the Fox polls, and your your listeners all know this, uh, his, his polling's gone down. And tonight, if he takes that, if he takes the opportunity to speak to the entire nation and focuses back in on his base, that's a recipe for disaster. That is a major recipe for disaster. And likewise with the Democrats. You know, this is not just one side on this. It takes two to tango. And I think for the Democrats, they, they would be wise to talk about what they can do together. And I, 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 am, I personally think that a wall of some sort might make some sense somewhere. But utilizing technology, utilizing, uh, putting in more border crossings where uh, agents can truly inspect a car, truly go in and, and find out what's in the vehicle, find out, do some uh, using technology, some drug, I mean, um, face ID, using artificial intelligence. All those type of things, I think, would be better than what we have now. But I think it's okay, and it would be wise for Pelosi to say, look, um, we, we're not going to do the $5 billion or whatever that, yeah, it's the $5 billion, but we will do something, and let's come together and take the TSA. And the, they do have a bipartisan group in place, as, as you know, to study the wall, to study the whole uh, notion on national security, and I, I think with that bipartisan group, it would behoove both uh, Democrats and Republicans to listen to what they have to say. But, you know, Tom, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, tonight up in the gallery, there will be some TSA agents. There's going to be a family who lost uh, a loved ones to a tragic uh, shooting that happened uh, by an undocumented immigrant. 
And just that very notion, and, and from Utah, we're, which is on a positive side, we're going to have uh, Brett Taylor's wife will be back there, uh, a great patriot, uh, a great leader, a military man, a guy who is the mayor in, in South Ogden. His widow will be there. And the symbolism of who's in the audience and what the president will defer to and what he'll show will we'll say a lot about where his speech is going to go. And if he cues off on some of that emotional rhetoric, then I think all bets are off with everybody, because then the other side will say, well, look who we have up here. We have a shooting victim that survived. We have an immigrant who's, who's made uh, great progress in the country, owns this business, blah, 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 on and on and on. So I, I think tonight uh, the atmosphere is going to be something that's going to have to be very careful for both parties in order to make sure that they uh, that they don't lose the everyday citizen in our country. I wonder what your thoughts are on, on returning to uh, good faith debate. Um, and, I, you know, we've always had, you know, arguing in, in bad faith, I, I assume, throughout, throughout our history, but it seems like it's reached a fevered pitch. Uh, the, the example that comes to mind, and I'm sure there are examples on the other side, uh, is the caravan. The president's closing argument uh, in the 2018 elections was the caravan's coming and uh, and they're going to kill your grandma, you know, and um, and and then the, the president's allies in the press, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, the, the caravans bringing smallpox and AIDS and leprosy. And uh, this is obviously bad faith, right? Um, and I'm, and again, I'm sure there are arguments, <laughs> sure there are examples on the other side as well. Uh, how do we how do we get back to to uh, debating? You know, we have uh, true differences of opinion, but how do we get back to debating in good faith? Well, I, I think what you just articulated is exactly the emotional ploy of any great uh, organization that wants to reach the masses and not have somebody study an issue, but just reach out to those emotional heartstrings. And um, I, I give uh, credit to this president in terms of how he's able to paint a picture that people will uh, automatically fall into and that they won't take time to do the research or take time to, to do some fact-checking. Uh, I remember when he gave that, um, when he came on national television and talked about the caravan and talked about how it was the Democrats and he said Democrats four times, and he knows how. This is a guy who's done reality TV. This is a guy who knows how to work the audience. And unfortunately, we as Americans have become so, uh, maybe it's not lazy, but that's kind of what I feel sometimes as opposed to going out and taking the time to really research the facts. As you know, that caravan, it imploded when it got there, and it never made anything else. But what an optic moment for him to go to his base and say, look at these people. They're taking your jobs. They're, they're MS-13. They are, uh, they've got disease, and they're bringing their pregnant women over. And the thing that I, I think also recently is – the president took uh, the human trafficking individual out of Utah uh, to go back and talk about human trafficking that was coming across the border. And while there is a portion of all those things, there's probably 
There's probably some that fit all those categories, but it's not a national emergency or security that the president's making. It's just not. And when we talk about police officers, I, I remember him saying that uh, all these murders that happened, and he, he, he stated three of them. But here in Utah, we've had tragic, uh, tragic murders with our own um, public safety officers over the last six months. Very few have been by undocumented, if any, uh, immigrants. Um, and I think everybody has to keep it in perspective about the reality of what's happening today and not to let the emotional heartstrings pull them to the left or to the right. And it's, it's, it's a skill that he has. Like I said, he's done reality TV, and he knows what the audience wants to hear. And again, who do I blame, put blame on mostly? It's the uninformed voter. It's not, it's not the um, informed voter, although I am concerned about where some of the informed voters are now getting their information when they just turn to the Internet and say, well, it was on the Internet, so it's got to be true. But I, I think it really does take an effort to keep our democracy alive, to keep it vibrant, to keep it full, to do what, we, what we've committed to do, to take the time and discuss these issues in a very civil way. Uh, so I guess uh, what you're saying in the end, it's up to up to us. If we if we want a different climate, we got to put in different people. Is that what you're saying? You know, Tom. This morning, um, I've had a lot of uh, feedback on Proposition Three, as you know, is the Medicaid expansion, and that bill passed the Senate, 22 to seven, uh, mostly upon party lines. Todd Weiler uh, was the lone Republican that voted with the Democrats. Um, this is a proposition that went through the whole process. And to think that now my former colleagues are saying that voters were ignorant and didn't really understand the ramifications of that proposition and to vote it out is really a slap in the face of democracy. And I think what we're seeing, and at the end of the conversation, I, I talked about 14 people. Uh, I said, the only way to change this is that you get involved on a local level. And I say local, I mean school boards, city council, county commissioners, um, legislators, House and Senate. And that you get involved, you, you get involved in the campaign, you ask hard questions when you're interviewing candidates, you ask and you make contributions. That's not always about monetary things, it's volunteering time and effort. But I think at the end of the day, the key people that can change Proposition 3, change the presidency, it's you and me, and it's all your listeners. And I look at the 18-year-olds, and I'm telling you, as you know from the debate commission, we have always thought one of our primary mission was to get the youth of our great state more involved because they could literally change a election. And that's why civility and the debates that we host uh, with my colleague uh, uh, Thomas Wright, uh, we both, we, we agree that we have got to provide the, um, uh, the citizens of the great state of Utah the opportunity to hear those candidates under pressure, under 
circumstances where they're asked the tough questions. They're not getting softball questions. And I think that that's the only way that we can change what is going on in our country, our state, and community today. Let's take a break. We're going to come back more with uh, Scott Howell. Uh, we're talking uh, about uh, the title of uh, former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake's talk recently at USU. Is polarizing partisanship the new normal? We're talking about State of the Union address as well and related topics. You can join us at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll throw this question out to you. Is polarizing partisanship the new normal? Uh, and if you don't like that, how do you change it? upraxcess at gmail.com. And what's your experience? I'm interested what your experience is in your neighborhood with your friends. Is is that great divide, that great sort happening maybe even in your family? Um, before we go to break, I'll just uh, describe a, a cartoon. I think this was a Doonesbury c- cartoon. I, I'm not sure what it was. But um, the, the people were arriving for Thanksgiving, and uh, the hosts uh, said, well, due to the political climate, each of us will be eating in our separate rooms. You know, that's, that's, the, kind of, <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of thing that's happening, and I think it's distressing. Uh, so I'd be interested to, to get your take. Uh, UPRAccess at gmail.com or 800-826-1495. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms wedding and event venue located at 4460 North, 400 East in Hyde Park. Offering a finished barn for indoor events and open grass areas for outdoor parties with views of Cache Valley. More information available on Facebook or 435-232-8502. And the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra presents She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain Pops concert Saturday, February 9th at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Danes Concert Hall featuring the Cache Children's Choir. Ticket details at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Did you know that um, ladies actually have gonads also? Really? I did not know that. I did not know that. Did not know that. Gonads. On the next Radio Lab, join us for the first episode of a three-part series on the mysterious inner workings of human reproduction. Gonads are magical organs. <laughs> gonads on the next Radio Lab. That's this morning at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock, on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We are talking uh, today uh, about uh, a talk that uh, former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake gave yesterday on the USU campus. The title is Polarizing Partisanship, the New Normal. He gave that for the Institute of Government and Politics at USU, their Foxley Forum series. And uh, we featured a conversation with him earlier in the program. Right now we're talking with Scott Howell, former state senator, uh, former Senate candidate, and uh, current Utah Debate Commission co-chair. 
Um, so, uh, Scott Howell, I want to read this. This is also from the Logan Herald Journal reporting on Senator Flake's visit. And here's what Senator Flake said, uh, an example of why he thought in uh, past years uh, Congress, congressmen and women got along better. He said, in generations past, when you were elected into Congress, you typically moved your family back to Washington. You would raise your family in the Maryland suburbs, Virginia suburbs, sometimes in the city. Republican or Democrats would live next to each other. Their kids would go to the same schools. Their children would play on the same sports teams. They would entertain together, recreate together, worship together. And the bonds that they would forge over the weekends were stronger than the partisanship during the weekdays. He said that was lost in the 90s. Uh, a, a big new uh, class uh, of uh, freshman uh, representatives come in where they were told to uh, live in their home districts and uh, start thinking immediately about their reelection. Um, so, Wendy, your, your experience in uh, in, the, in the state senate here, obviously, uh, you know, more opportunity to rub shoulders. That's got to have a salutary effect. You know, it's, um, uh, Tom, it's interesting because this argument about how our new congressional uh, teams live and act, um, you know, one thing was what was interesting about uh, Senator Hatch, uh, he lived back in in D.C. his entire time, and he had a uncanny ability to meet a lot of people and I think a lot of that was back when he first got elected in, in the late 70s, that that was the norm. And I've often thought that we should probably give a stipend to those new congressional candidates to allow them to go back and, and live there and, and not forgetting their their uh, districts. Um, they still have a responsibility to come back, and, and they need to come back. But I think Jeff is on to something that really makes a difference. Um, my great friend, Senator Lyle Hilliard, uh, who uh, your uh, county and, and community has elected for many, many years. Uh, when I was first elected, Lyle came over, uh, sat down with me, introduced himself. And, you know, we started a great friendship. Um, his son, Matt, was a regular in my office. Um, and Matt um, Hilliard broke the ice for a lot of us in the Senate who let our egos and our attitudes uh, about life take over and forgetting the human be- human side of being elected official. Um, after I was elected minority leader, I made it a point every year I would go to every office of newly elected House members and Senate members and get to know them. And one thing about our Utah legislature, they do provide a lot of uh, social experiences for families to get together. And it's a different story when you're standing there with Alice Hilliard and Linda Howell at your side. <laughs> you don't take the same uh, aggressive stance with uh, Lyle and myself that we did on the Senate floor. And you realize that, you know what, we have to maintain decorum all the time. And I, and I think that that is something that's messing, and I think just the whole notion of extending the hand of friendship, agreeing to disagree, and I've seen that time and time in, in the Utah State Senate. When I was a freshman, I would see these very, um, very vocal and very intense arguments, and then I'd watch these two guys leave the Senate. And in particular, I remember uh, Dixie Levitt and Haven Barlow, and I'd watch them leave the Senate together and go, hey, where are you going to lunch? 
Uh, I'm going here. Oh, well, let's go. I'll go with you. And, and that, to me, really spoke reams about this whole decorum of maintaining a friendship and maintaining a relationship where you can learn from each other. And I, I think that that's, uh, I think Jeff was spot on. We just have two or three minutes left. I, I promised top of the program we'd talk about the Kavanaugh hearings, so I want to get that in. Uh, the, the, the Kavanaugh hearings were still going or just concluded, I think, uh, when uh, you and I and uh, Thomas Wright talked in October. Um, I'm curious what what your feelings are, what your view of this is now, you know, some months on, after, after that whole national uh, spectacle has uh, concluded. Uh, and that was illustrative, I think, of, uh, you know, some severe divisions uh, in uh, in our country. Very severe. And I remember, Tom, when we were talking last time, I made the comment, and I'll still stand by it. I think the Democrats uh, could have done a better job of working to determine where Kavanaugh was or wasn't. And I know that some of your callers were very upset with me and said, you know, question my Democratic credentials. But I was looking beyond that. Clearly, this guy was going to be confirmed. But I think that there, the, the Democrats could have done a better job of bringing out earlier these accusations. I mean, we went through this whole demeaning thing for both the woman. I think her name was uh, Stacy. I can't remember. but uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, it was so challenging uh, for the families. I remember Kavanaugh's wife, uh, when they panned back on her, and I thought about their children. I thought about uh, everyone that was involved, and I think there would have been better ways to handle all of this. And I think it goes to the whole notion that um, sometimes you have to play your cards and know that you're not in the majority, and I've been in the minority most of my uh, career, almost all my political career here in Utah, and learning how to get the best outcome of what you can give a very good input and how people perceive you in the future and maintaining decorum is important. Now, does that mean you just roll over and play dead and say, yes, yes, I mean, no, you don't. But that one is one that I, there was no other recourse for Democrats, and I wish they would have handled it differently. Tom, I, I just wanted to take it also a minute. Something historic is going to happen tonight. Uh, the Democratic response uh, to Trump will be delivered by Stacey Abrams. Now, we're, who's really, she's, she's excited interest from activists across the country. And in the fall, she was nearly elected, as you know, to the U.S. as the U.S. first African-American woman state governor by uh, voters in a once heg- heavily segregated Georgia. And I think that's going to be an interesting uh, reply back to the president, and I can only hope, and I've seen her in action, that she will maintain that decorum and respect for the office of the president of the United States. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with him, but to have a respect for the office of the highest uh, office in the world is very key to, I think, bringing people back together again, as opposed to segmenting our different uh, cultural norms and everything else. I also wanted to say on the Doonesbury cartoon, I have family members who voted for Trump, and I love them. I love my family members. I have vigorous conversation with them about Trump, but I've never lost a relationship, a friendship, a church fellow parishioner over politics. It just is not worth it.
Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I heard at the end we have an email that's come in. Um, the emailer says, I'll paraphrase your guest's argument against Trump's position on immigration. I don't think this is uh, Scott Howell's argument. You can say, anyway, the argument uh, that was put forward, if you agree with Trump, you're naive and or ignorant. And the uh, emailer says, that's not a reasonable argument. Oh, I, I certainly didn't. And I'm sorry, um, listener. What I said is, um, just go back and read the documentation on when the president has spoken so many times. There's fact-checking that can talk about his enthusiasm to not tell the truth. Um, Chris Christie has a new book out called uh, Fear and, and Something Else, and he actually talks about when Trump was in a campaign situation and lied, just lied. And uh, Chris talks about that in the book, and Trump called him back later and said, you know, the moment of the uh, uh, campaign got to me, I'm sorry, I was wrong in that. But he seems to have a lot of moments where the truth is not told. And what I'm suggesting, and I want to make this clear, is that people go and do fact-checking. And when he said that the uh, um, Mexicans would pay for the wall, I was all in on that, thinking that that would be fair. But now he's he's backed out of that, and I could just give numerous different things uh, about that. And we need the integrity of the office be reflected by the individual in the office and maintain that that truth. Now, don't get me wrong, both parties do it. My good friend, Bill Clinton, his staff called me and said he did not, he was not had, had sex with that woman. They, they called me and said that when I was in office. I believed him, and trust me, I called him out on it, too. He lied, it was wrong, and he should have taken a different pathway. I'm just saying if I hadn't done my homework and I would have continued to believe the, the messages that I was getting from the DNC, I would have never been able to come to the facts and reality of what happened with the president. And by the way, the president apologized to me, said he was wrong, he was sorry about it. And that's what I'm saying is that and we'll, we'll have to uh, we'll take the time. We'll have to end it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, Scott Howell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Go Aggies. Okay. Best ice cream in the world. Okay, thank you. Uh, Scott Howell, former state senator and current uh, co-chair of the Utah Debate Commission. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.